Welcome. You're listening to the NAB Podcast. You're here with your host, James Anderson, and my co-host, Eli Kramer. And today we have an interview with Professor Elizabeth Anderson. Professor Anderson is the Arthur F. Thurnau Professor and John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. She teaches courses in ethics, social and political philosophy, political economy, philosophy of the social sciences, and feminist theory. She's done some recent work on the history of egalitarianism with a special focus on more learning, taking the history of abolitionism as a case study. She was also the first director of the program in philosophy, politics, and economics at her university. And she is the author of Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It, a book that we discuss a bit in the interview. And so with no further ado, I'm going to go ahead and uh, give you a chance to listen to the discussion that we had with Professor Elizabeth Anderson. You're listening to the NAB podcast, and we're here with Professor Elizabeth Anderson. Professor Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So we wanted to go ahead and just jump right in. We have some questions for you. A few are about your 2017 book, Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives, and Why We Don't Talk About It. And so we wondered if you could briefly explain that concept of private government that you put forward in that book. Well, I think one way to think about it is in terms of the famous quip by Louis XIV, l'état c'est moi, the state is me, right? It's like the state is his own private domain. It's nobody else's business. And in particular, it's not any business of the people of France to know what's going on or to have any say in what's going on. And he's not accountable to them in any way for how he runs France. That's the idea of private government. And my argument in my book is that most uh, uh, firms are run as private governments where the CEO or the business owner isn't really accountable to the workers, even though the workers are subject to the authority of the the managers, the boss, right? But they don't have any say in how the workplace is being governed. So they're subject to private government, just like French subjects to the king of France back in the day. And... uh... Do you think your critique uh, applies to U.S. colleges and universities and their function as employers? And if so, uh, as we kind of assume, has the two-tier system exacerbated arrangements insofar as there's now an underclass of contingent faculty defined by precarious short-term employment and largely denied participation in formal shared governance bodies? So I think it is very important to distinguish between uh, the role of tenured faculty who have an exceptionally uh, privileged kind of employment status from the role of contingent faculty who really are subject to private government. So in, in universities today, tenured faculty have protections from being fired without cause, and they're quite elaborate procedural protections. And, and so consequently, the, the university is accountable for running those procedures. And I want to stress that the default principle of employment in American law is employment at will. And that means that the boss can fire a worker 
for any reason or no reason at all, with a tiny number of exceptions that are carved out in anti-discrimination laws. So the boss can't fire you because of your race, gender, and age, and so forth, um, but otherwise has free reign to be completely arbitrary. And that is a critical linchpin of private government in the workplace. Because if the boss can fire you for any reason, the boss can fire you for failing to obey virtually any order, Uh, whether that be an order pertaining to your duties at work, or even, you know, the boss gets miffed at something you do in your private life, and you could be fired for that, even though it has nothing to do with your ability to responsibly discharge your duties. That's the condition that contingent faculty are in because they have lives of precarity where they live from one semester contract to another, or maybe a year long contract. Uh, And, and, you know, they might just not be hired again for some arbitrary reason that has nothing to do with how well they're discharging their duties. And speaking of that employer authority over workers' lives in your book, you wrote that since workers freely and uh, enter and exit the labor contract, they're perfectly free under it. That's the that's the impression that uh, people get, which, as you point out, ignores the fact a labor contract puts the seller under the authority of their boss. So I wondered if you could touch on that a little bit and on the related ideology that you also address in your book that makes it so hard for us to talk about the way that bosses rule working people's lives. Right. So I think in order to understand free market ideology, I think it's important to put it into its historical context. So if we look at people like Adam Smith and Tom Paine, two great advocates of free market society, both of them also advocated uh, fairly radical measures in property rights that they believed would lead under free market conditions to a relatively equal distribution of property. And that's one of the reasons why they advocated free market society because if productive property is relatively equally distributed, then everyone is essentially self-employed. And that means that they can meet other self-employed people as equals in the marketplace. They won't have to take orders from anybody. They won't be able to give orders to anybody. You're just going to have perfectly competitive markets through and through, and nobody's subject to a boss, except perhaps as a temporary condition of life, just long enough to save money from wages, to buy a farm, or to uh, set up shop as a lawyer or a professional or a doctor, some kind of person providing services on one's own. And that, that, if you think of free market ideologies arising in that circumstance under conditions of rather different property rights that we have now, property rights configured with a deliberate eye towards more equal distribution, it's not crazy to think that free market society could actually deliver a free society of equals. <laughs> But what actually happens, both Smith and Payne were writing only at the very threshold of the Industrial Revolution with no real capacity to anticipate the huge economies of scale that modern factory technology would bring about 
that wiped out uh, uh, small business people and turned them into wage laborers who were subject to uh, the authority of big factory owners. So the bet they made on what free markets would deliver uh, didn't pan out. And of course, also the desires they had for reconfiguring property relations to make them more equal also were never realized. (laughs) And consequently, uh, we saw over the course of the 19th century, ever increasing concentrations of wealth and uh, the subjection of ordinary workers to their bosses. So there was that ironic reversal there, but because the United States and its own founding ideology, it was born in the American Revolution and it continued straight up to the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln's 1860 stump speech for the presidency explicitly claimed that the rights of workers were superior to the rights of capital and that his agenda would liberate all workers, uh, including slaves, of course, uh, but also liberate free white workers uh, by opening up homesteads out West so everyone could be a self-employed farmer. And Americans really have been living off this uh, uh, hope long after it was dashed. In other words, we still talk about free markets liberating people, uh, even though the reality turned out to be quite different. We haven't updated our political discourse to match the reality. And we have cabins of ideologues who want to sustain the current capitalist system of extreme inequality by harking back to this older uh, pro-free market Uh, rhetoric that promised uh, something that it ultimately couldn't deliver. Uh, To follow up a little on that, I was curious, do you think this kind of uh, narrative, are there ways in which it pervaded U.S. higher education? In particular, I'm thinking about, for example, the tension in the history of U.S. higher education with the promise of social efficiency. You know, if you join, we'll be able to give you, uh, help you enter the middle class and find some sort of autonomy and stability. And if so, uh, have you thought about what sort of consequences that's had, both kind of positive and negative, uh, especially in our current circumstances? Well, historically, uh, one of the great causes of the American advantage in global economic competition was uh, that education was extended to much wider groups of people than Europe. Uh, And economists think that that was a huge success of the United States uh, in rapidly expanding access to secondary education and college education, where Europe was far behind. It didn't really catch up until after World War II. However, uh, it's been a a long time since World War II, and things have changed a lot. Our current educational system, in many respects, has has fallen behind in terms of being able to afford effective opportunities to the bottom half of the population. We've seen increasing inequality, and that has put special strain on higher education. Uh, Just... 
give you an example. I, I got my co college education in the late 70s and early 80s. <clears throat> it was still the high point of idealism. You know, we were a little bit past the high point, perhaps, which happens uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. So there was a lot of idealism and a lot of hope and people uh, sought a liberal arts education um, to pursue questions that they found meaningful, uh, to uh, explore areas of inquiry that just because it, they were curious about it. And people in those days didn't really worry that much about finding a decent job because jobs for college educated people were plentiful. These days, uh, college students are pretty anxious about their prospects, and that anxiety is brought about by increasing inequality. Uh, the ladder of success is much taller than it was in the 1970s, but each rung uh, up from the last is narrower and narrower, and that's brought about an extremely intensive uh, uh, competition to climb narrower and narrower rungs. And it's displaced many of the aspirations, especially of liberal arts education, but higher education more generally, as uh, it's just seen as another uh, aid one can have in scrambling over one's competitors to the top of the ladder. That kind of spirit, uh, I think, is profoundly corrupting for higher education. and. Uh, it distracts students from the actual project of learning as opposed to credentializing. Uh, institutions of higher education have turned into places where whose primary objective is to credentialize students so that they can have uh, uh, some mark of superiority that they can wield in the marketplace. Uh, and I think that's... Uh, really corrupted education in many ways. So we have the commercialization and marketing of master's diplomas, primarily a revenue raising operation of higher education rather than something that's really dedicated to advancing inquiry and learning. And I think we're gonna want to return to some of those issues momentarily, but I did want to ask, so you, you, uh, Professor Anderson, you mentioned the increase in anxiety attributed to the growing levels of inequality. And of course, uh, the increased levels of anxiety that a lot of working people experience can also probably be attributed to extreme levels of precarity now, as you already alluded to. And you mentioned how many employers will uh, censor or discipline or fire workers, contingent faculty included in colleges and universities for saying things even off the job. And and you mentioned in your book, Private Government, that only about one half of U.S. workers have some protections for that sort of off-duty speech. And so I'm wondering if you view the seeming encroachments on academic freedom, that is when universities and, and colleges fire, discipline, contingent faculty for often what's termed extramural utterances, if uh, that's indicative of the same sort of problem that you diagnose in your book, and if you think that the principles that undergird what's referred to as academic freedom should apply to those uh, who labor within, but also with outside, uh, who labor outside academia, if, if the protections uh, should rightfully be extended beyond the ivory tower? Yeah, it's a great question. 
I think it's very important to distinguish academic freedom from freedom of speech. <clears throat> academic freedom is subject to all kinds of constraints on what we can say on the job that don't apply to ordinary people speaking out in the public square. Uh, and that's covered by freedom of speech rules. So in particular, we're accountable as scholars for academic integrity. Uh, we can't lie. We can't plagiarize. We can't fake our data. <laughs> we're subject to uh, much more stringent standards of quality in what we say, living up to standards of epistemic responsibility, uh, care in, uh, take, in interpreting our evidence, uh, making sure that our reasoning is logical. <laughs> and so we are held to quality standards in what we say on the job and academic freedom is shaped with reference to those standards. Uh, so in fact, in, in, in fact, conformity to those standards is needed to make sure that the claims that we generate are reliable and indicative of an advance in knowledge as opposed to, you know, propaganda or, you know, something that really has no reliability at all. Whereas out in the public square, people can say anything they like, they can lie, they can propagandize. And I think we should keep those things separate. Now, as far as the workplace goes, though, I do believe that workers, whether they're academics or not, should have all the free speech protections that citizens have if they're speaking in the public square and not speaking as academics. If you speak as an academic who claims expertise, okay, and, you know, claims to be sharing research, the results of your research, then I think you're accountable. But if you're just spouting off your own political opinions, <laughs> right, and, you know, on Twitter or whatever, um, <clears throat> then I think it should fall as extramural speech and uh, it should not be subject to university sanction in general. Of course, there are things that one might say, like threatening other people. <laughs> which uh, could be highly problematic, but those are also, are also not protected under the First Amendment either. Um, <clears throat> but in general, I think we have to keep those two realms as separate as possible, while keeping in mind that sometimes academics speak to a wider audience, but what they do, what they claim to be doing is reporting the results of their research. And when they're doing that, then I think they're accountable to the same academic standards that we have when we publish in journals. For ordinary workers, though, I do think that they're entitled, they should be entitled to protection from firing for their extramural speech. They can't engage in sexual harassment or racial harassment against their colleagues at work, or even if, even on Facebook, if they're harassing their colleagues uh, off duty, but they're still like directing hostile messages uh, uh, to their coworkers. I think they could be accountable for that. But if they're just spouting off whatever political opinion they might have or other obnoxious opinions uh, and it's off duty and they're not specifically addressing their coworkers or harassing them in any way, I do think in general, such speech should be protected. And again, I could think of exceptions and we could talk about that, but for ordinary workers, for the most part, those exceptions wouldn't apply. Uh, to also follow up on that one, 
How do you think about, you know, as you were talking about with social media and kind of other digital presence, I think part of the difficulty is trying to figure out how to, you know, delineate the, the kind of private free, free speech space from your sort of academic role. And in particular, I'm thinking about how, uh, how do you think about or approach or think we should consider, you know, cases, uh, particularly around uh, you know, professors using racially insensitive language or ways where, you know, particular students feel dismissed or maybe ways in which they talk in their kind of non-professional role in a candor that uh, fairly or not, you know, st rubs students the wrong way. Yes. Can that, you know, uh, to Look, a degree, can that be, you know, used or addressed about, you know, in their, uh, their role as professionals and as teachers? Right. Look, I do think that... Um... <clears throat> We, a, a faculty member's extramural speech, and I mean speech that's off campus, it's on the classroom. Uh, they, faculty may well be saying some obnoxious things to which students take offense. But I do think that it should in general still be protected. It might raise some eyebrows and and students might then <clears throat> examine whether similar stuff is happening in the classroom that might amount to racial or sexual harassment or harassment on other grounds. You know, but if but in general, I think if it if it's happening in a truly extramural context, and the faculty member is taking care to treat students and colleagues and staff members with respect in the performance of academic duties, then I think the faculty member should not be fired for that. And I wanted to go ahead and return to uh, the issue of markets in relation to higher education. <clears throat> you already uh, touched on how and you explain in your book how there was once arguably the justification for championing a market society as egalitarian, but that justification pretty much disappeared with greater industrialization and more pervasive wage labor. And of course, there are plenty of market enthusiasts today in higher education and, and out. And there are also market abolitionists who view markets as institutions that are antithetical to human solidarity and egalitarianism. And I know you've done quite a lot of work on the ethical limits of markets. And so we wanted to ask if you think higher education in the United States in particular should function on any market principles or if there are other institutions and arrangements that you consider more conducive to sustaining quality higher education? And similarly, what kinds of theories or critiques of markets do you think are relevant in relation to higher ed? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> first of all, I just wanna stress what I think is an error in market abolitionism. And that is the market isn't one thing. There are many ways to constitute the roles of the market. And some of them lead to authoritarianism, such as the idea, the, you know, the default principle of uh, employment at will. But you can rewrite the rules of the market. You can have a very different market game. Some of those, I, I, think, I think in general, markets are indispensable for advanced economies. We don't really have uh, alternative methods that can be so responsive to shifts in consumer demand and in uh, 
uh, shortages of, of inputs and so forth. We need markets. We don't have planning can't really substitute for markets. Everything, what matters is what are the roles of the market game? Those have to be carefully designed to ensure that inequality doesn't get out of control. <laughs> but it's quite possible to write the rules of market exchange and property so as to support a society of equals. Now, as far as higher education goes, I do think that the fundamental principles of higher education, uh, although they are sensitive to market demand at the margins, shouldn't be fundamentally driven uh, uh, by market principles. For one thing, higher education is nonprofit, and it should stay that way. I don't think, uh, uh, in general, there are some for-profit colleges. A great many of them are scam educational institutions, little better than degree mills, except the credential often isn't worth anything. Um, And there are good reasons for that, because what we're trying to do is advance knowledge, right? Scholarship that advances knowledge both in our distribution, you know, in our conveying skills to students and in cutting edge research. And the market isn't really all that great at that. There's some certain kinds of foundational knowledge uh, which the market won't pay for. And so we need other ways of funding uh, fundamental research uh, that doesn't have a market. And the market can also be de- deeply corrupting. There's a, there's a market for falsehood. <laughs> there's a market for bad research that could be used to support various scam operations or dishonest business models uh, or, you know, the you know, fake science that's used to undermine real science that shows negative externalities from fossil fuels and other polluting enterprises. And that's why... Inquiry has to be insulated from a number of market pressures that can lead to corruption and false, you know, false beliefs and bad science. Uh, And that then poses some challenges for higher education because you need a lot of money in order to run especially big science. Uh, And we already have seen that, say, pharmaceutical corporations play a hand in corrupting clinical research um, by putting constraints on what faculty can publish. Uh, you know, if they, if they run a, a clinical trial, some kind of experiment on a new uh, drug, sometimes the pharmaceutical company that's funded the research says, well, we want to have the last word on, on what you say in your findings. And often the last word spins the findings in such a way as to obscure the most important results if those results undermine the view that the medicine being tested uh, is uh, efficacious and safe. And Professor Anderson, in your book, you also remark on the perverse marriage between libertarianism of the right-wing variety, I should stress, because in the 19th century, 
libertarianism was often associated with anarchism as well, but that's not, that's not what you're referring to. Uh, that marriage between the right-wing libertarianism and authoritarianism, which is a kind of ironic coupling that, as you point out, continues to haunt us to this day. And I wondered if you could explain that unholy union a little bit more, and if you see any evidence of that kind of ontological uh, coupling in formal education at the K-12 level or at the post-secondary levels, and if you think it's a factor in formal education itself or not, do you think educators should be interrogating that kind of contradictory ideological framework? Yes. So that's really a great question. Um, <clears throat> there's a kind of mythology of free market ideology, which is that free markets arise spontaneously. And any two people who engage in a market transaction kind of make up the rules spontaneously in that very interaction. It's just not how markets work. Markets don't have natural principles. Markets are very delicate products of social engineering. And then there's a question, well, who is actually designing the roles of the market? Okay, and basically we have two choices. <laughs> there are hundreds of roles for any transaction. You download software, you're going to have a multi-page contract that nobody reads. But the contract has been written exclusively by the software developer entirely in the software developer's own interests. You're on social media, you have no idea what, how your data is being used or whether you would like how it's being used because they don't really tell you who they're selling your data to, okay? That contract, okay, is a contract of adhesion imposed by the more powerful player on the less powerful player. Alternatively, you could have the state write the default terms of market interaction. That's called regulation, and libertarians claim that it's bad because it constrains freedom. But in a contract of adhesion, the consumer doesn't have any freedom, and nor does the worker. They just have to accept whatever terms are imposed on them by the more powerful party. So when libertarians say they don't like the state regulating the market, what that really means is what they want is the more powerful player in the market to dictate terms of market exchange to the less powerful players on the market. And that is an authoritarian relationship because in order to get access to various necessary goods imported for life in modern society, Consumers and workers have little choice but to accept whatever terms are imposed on them by the more powerful player and, and really don't have much room to deviate from that. And that's why I think the rhetoric of free markets, in fact, is really a masquerade for a massive project of handing the power to design the rules of the market game over to the inside powerful players who then exercise it to enhance their own power over other players in the market. And that's an essentially authoritarian move. Now, as far as higher education goes, uh, we can see how market principles have profoundly affected K through 12 education through the charter school movement, for instance, where uh, schools can gain, they are technically public schools, uh, uh, so they're publicly funded, but they are released from any accountability to the voters. And they can be run on whatever principles 
uh, uh, the operators of the charter school like and compete for students on whatever basis they choose. Uh, <clears throat> and some of these charter schools are, in fact, their management is handed over to a for-profit company. Uh, and those companies frequently enough, although not in every case, just treat uh, the charter school as a vehicle for channeling tax dollars directly into the pocket of investors with as little money as possible actually being devoted to classroom instruction. I actually had a student of mine who did an honors thesis investigating how for-profit charter schools were managed in the city of Detroit. And she discovered an important fact about them, which is that such schools were usually founded in Detroit in what you might call school deserts. Keep in mind that most of the residents of Detroit are relatively disadvantaged. Many of them don't have uh, access to reliable means of transportation. And consequently, they have no choice but to send their kids to the local school, the closest school nearby. And they don't really have options to send their kids to other schools. So the rhetoric of choice is illusory. In fact, these schools are for-profit schools that operate as a local monopoly, a de facto monopoly, with a population that has very little choice and is kind of trapped. <clears throat> and in these schools, what one finds is almost no resources devoted to classroom instruction, to things like desks and supplies and teacher salaries and staffing and, you know, reading recovery specialists and all the other people who are needed to have a vital school. And it's said that money is just being used to pay the principal and the investors vast amounts of money and the children are not learning in those schools. So that's what happens on, you know, when you try to put schools on a basis of markets, okay, is that the market players find all kinds of ways to take advantage of vulnerable populations uh, uh, and, and trap them into systems where they have no choice but to send their kids to a failing school. Now, one could say that, in fact, many public schools in Detroit are also failing, and that would be true. But in my view, the way to correct that would be to enhance accountability, uh, as well as the resources that those schools have, um, uh, accountability to the public, to the voting public, rather than imagining that accountability can be achieved uh, through markets. Uh, on a kind of related theme, the bringing it back some related questions on the higher education side. Uh, you've recently been working on the history of egalitarianism, focusing especially on moral learning, taking abolitionist history as a case study. Coincidentally, at your university, the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, graduate student workers went on strike for more than a week back in September to ensure some semblance of egalitarianism in the form of safe teaching and learning conditions for everyone. They also went on strike to advance an abolitionist demand referring to the present-day abolitionist movement working to abolish the prison industrial complex. The Graduate Student Workers Union at the University of Michigan has been trying to eliminate campus police specifically. Does your inquiry into similar historical themes provide any theoretical insight into the struggles like those of GEO uh, 3,550 members at Michigan uh, have been engaged in? Yeah, so... Um... 
In my research on the history of egalitarianism, one of the most fundamental things that I've learned is that the push for equality, the struggle for social equality, has a recurring pattern of massive leaps forward, and then uh, the people at the top climb things back. So we saw that in abolition. Uh, Certainly the abolition of slavery was a major leap forward in freedom and equality for the enslaved, uh, for the freed people. Uh, But of course, it was met with powerful backlash uh, and the former slaveholders or uh, their uh, racial compatriots uh, working very hard to reconstruct uh, racial domination on other foundations. So you can't enslave people anymore, <laughs> but you know you can set up a Jim Crow system of segregation and hyper-policing uh, that still reproduces systematic racial domination uh, with perhaps less oppressive means, but still through oppressive structures. So I think the fundamental lesson we have to learn from this is that systems of systematic group-based inequality don't disappear just because you dismantle uh, their original institutional foundation. Because the old attitudes and identities uh, and unequal resources and power can persist even after the demolition of a major institutional bulwark of inequality. Uh, And those extra resources of dominant groups can be used to construct new institutions, right? And, And so you could see racist policing as a kind of legacy of slavery and slave patrols. That's historically accurate. And um, consequently, we still see today uh, modes of policing that continue on various repressive, racially repressive practices that are, are really carried on by habit and historical legacy uh, from 150 years ago. So the Graduate Student uh, Union did indeed strike uh, against these practices, participating in the broader Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, They didn't actually strictly call for the complete elimination of the campus police, but certainly a dramatic down funding. Uh, my own view is that it's characteristic of systems of oppression that the institutions that are oppressive are simultaneously serving certain functions that would still have to be served in any just successor regime. So if you look at slavery, right, slavery was an institution that was the basis for growing necessary crops such as rice and cotton. You still had to grow those crops one way or another. Those functions still had to continue. And similarly, while police today uh, are engaged in violent and unjust practices, it's still the case that we need some institution or other to secure basic safety 
and order. Uh, and, and so you can't just abolish <laughs> things without a careful plan in place for uh, some successor institution to take over. And that's why you can't really do this overnight. Um, it takes a lot of serious thought and experimentation, uh, careful and incremental, uh, to invent new practices that can secure public safety uh, without the kinds of violence and injustice that our current institutions are inflicting on people of color. In relation to unions in higher education, particularly those that are, we might say, more militant and that advocate participatory democratic practices and, uh, and, and that try to empower the rank and file. I wonder, Professor Anderson, if you think unions in higher ed like that offer any kind of antidote to private government at the university level insofar as they promote some semblance of workplace democracy or if there are other forms of collective action and organization that might um, also be useful in terms of combating the authoritarian forms of governance that we see in higher ed? Oh, absolutely. I think every contingent faculty member is entitled to join a union. <laughs> they desperately need union representation. I, I don't think that tenured professors at elite schools uh, need those protections. We have plenty of other protections, <laughs> but definitely uh, contingent faculty need them. And I strongly support uh, uh, labor unions in higher education, uh, both for faculty, all faculty really at, you know, uh, less privileged and wealthy institutions and all contingent faculty everywhere. At University of Michigan, our lecturers are in fact unionized and they've made been able to bargain for huge gains, uh, uh, both in salary and in um, labor protections that uh, in many cases, if they've been here for enough years, amount to a quasi-tenured uh, position. Uh, so yeah, labor unions deliver huge gains, and I do think that they should be welcomed by institutions of higher education rather than resisted, not just for faculty, but also graduate student instructors. Uh, we're going to shift uh, gears a little bit to some broad questions now, just about uh, where you're at in your own work, and particularly in the kind of present situation we find ourselves. Um, so to start things off, uh, how has the COVID-19 pandemic shaped or shifted your research and work? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things about the pandemic, you know, I'm teaching online. I haven't been to my office since the middle of March. <laughs> Campus was shut down. and. Uh, there are some faculty members who are back on campus, but my classes were too large to meet in person. So I'm on Zoom. I'm doing all of my duties on Zoom. And the surprising thing is how seamless the transition is uh, from in-person to online uh, instruction and service. Um, it hasn't been, you know, just in terms of my day-to-day -day life, I, of course, do miss the face-to-face -face exchange. Um, but we're a very teched up university here, and uh, that's, that's worked out reasonably well. 
um, as far as just being able to perform one's duties. You do lose a sense of dynamism and classroom instruction that you would have in a face-to-face setting, and I do miss that. Um, But of course, the pandemic also, I think, should affect the way we think about the problems um, that we face today. So especially for moral and political philosophers, there are two dimensions of this, at least, um, that are worth considering. One of them has to do between the contradiction between socially necessary workers declared by the pandemic as absolutely needing to do their work in person, who are at the same time subject to shocking levels of precarity and uh, danger um, without adequate compensation. It's just appalling. Well, if they are socially necessary, why do we treat them as disposable? Um, There's a fundamental contradiction here. Uh, And in fact, that does relate to my current subject of research, which is all about the Protestant work ethic and its legacy for today. Uh, If you go back and read the mid-17th century uh, Puritan theologians who invented the work ethic, uh, it's amazing how much of that thinking, even though we're no longer Puritans, uh, has carried over into American culture and shapes um, conditions of work in America and attitudes towards work. Uh, and I think that is long overdue for critique. Um, and one of the things I'm doing in my research is considering how the Protestant ethic affects, has you know, is reflected in our current practices, especially towards less advantaged workers. Another dimension is that the pandemic shows how global our problems are. We desperately need to strengthen institutions of global cooperation to to get a handle on the problems we face these days, and not just with respect to uh, global health, but of course also the global climate crisis. We also have uh, rising resistance to immigration, even though the climate crisis is going to only uh, increase uh, the need for migration of populations. Uh, We desperately need to be thinking at a global level. Um, And there's been some movement to do that within philosophy, but I think we have to scale up our efforts. Professor Anderson, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I believe you are currently the Arthur F. Thurnau Professor and John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at Michigan. Yeah. And so could you tell us what role, if any, the philosophy of John Dewey plays in your work today? Yeah, well, I I just want to comment, first of all, like, how did I even get that title? (laughs) It's a wonderful practice at University of Michigan that that when one becomes a university professor, you get to choose your title. So you're not, you know, it's not the name of a big donor or something. You choose the title based on someone who had previously taught at University of Michigan. And John Dewey got his start in his philosophical career uh, at University of Michigan. So I uh, very gladly uh, grabbed that title for myself because so much of my work has been deeply inspired by John Dewey's pragmatism. Uh, One of the ways in which that manifests is that Dewey said, we should be starting our philosophical work from 
experience, from problematic experiences that people have in real life. And that's the source of what we call today non-ideal moral and political philosophizing. We don't start imagining what an ideally perfect world would look like. We start our theorizing from the current problems uh, that people face. Uh, uh, and we investigate how that came about <laughs> and, and, and what is causing these problems in order to get a handle on how we can revise our moral ideas and our political ideas so as to arrive at better ways of living. But we philosophers play an indispensable role in a lot of this theorizing, but that has to be done in conjunction with revisions of moral practice. Dewey was one of the great exponents of the idea of experiments in living. You can't just think up a utopia out of your head and expect that that will be a utopia when you practice it. Every idea of a better way of living has to be tested in practice. And that means that we rely on practitioners uh, uh, who actually carry out those experiments from which philosophers then have much to learn. Well, on that note, Professor Anderson, we want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us on the NAB podcast. We really enjoyed hearing um, everything that you had to say, and we learned a lot. Thank you. It was great to, great to talk to you. And you're listening to the NAB podcast. That was our interview with Professor Elizabeth Anderson, who is a professor at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. And Eli, Professor Anderson was, was very on point in, in her responses, which I, I appreciated the, the precision and the direct, straightforward approach that she came to the interview with. And it, it really struck me what she said toward the end when she was talking about some of her own work and the, the question of the ideal and the non-ideal. I think you had a few things to say about that. Yeah, uh, we were, you know, talking offhand a little bit after the interview that, uh, you know, I, I situate myself as both like uh, what I call it, a non-ideal theorist that sees need for uh, ideal theory. What I mean by that is like, of course, we find ourselves in particular conditions and need to be sensitive to them and actually return to them and offer some sort of help to be effective, have some sort of, what do we call it, you know, a genuine reconstructive philosophy that helps ameliorate our situations. But I tend to think uh, that uh, sometimes, um, and I think there's uh, philosophers who have both thought this historically as well as today, that sometimes you need theory that is um, uh, not practicable, but is regulative to help us find alternatives in our lives. Like for example, Moore's Utopia, the kind of classic that started our way of thinking about utopias, in fact, where we get the term, is not something like, uh, despite the kind of narrative of non-ideal theory sometimes, it's not someone like, it's not something he imagined would actually come into being. It was actually a kind of fiction that was supposed to help us get out of certain patterns of behavior. Same thing with Plato's Republic. There's very little indication, at least as far as I understand, that the Plato imagined that something that was just going to poof into existence and people should literally do as he said it in the dialogue. The dialogue is actually a means to talk about uh, sentence of issue and equity and how to regulate our lives through rational reflection. 
it was not meant as like a literal prescription to what we do. I, I tend to think, and I've even written about it in Eidos, which is an also philosophy of culture, that uh, utopias have a really important role in helping us radically uh, reorient through alternatives. Like, you know, and I, I think it does affect practice. You know, uh, for example, there's lots of history, things you're talking about in abolitionism, of hardcore abolitionists that had pretty uh, uh, non-practical views about the fundamental dignity of human beings and the unethicalness of slavery that did not, you know, uh, exactly rub with the gradualism that many people advocated that would seem reasonable to change working conditions. Now, whether you could argue whether, you know, hardcore abolitionists, uh, one I have in mind is the, the founder of Berea College, John Greg B, had something practicable. On the other hand, I think you could say that without those kinds of voices, we would have never made the kind of rapid traction that happened during the Civil War or perhaps after. Uh, you know, same thing with the civil rights movement. Like uh, Martin Luther King used to always complain about, you know, what he called the myth of time, that if you just let things gradually do what they're going to do when we do it reasonably, things will work out. And if you do, like his point was, if you don't understand like, or start with some sort of fundamental principles that are non-negotiable for at least, you know, the dignity and autonomy of human beings, you can think about the kind of founding of the, with the UN about the universal rights of, and dignity of uh, humans uh, uh, as a kind of same commitment, it's very easily to kind of backslide. Uh, so anyways, that's interesting in your thoughts because obviously one I was thinking about is Graeber is another person who kind of refuses the, the concession that we have to have always integrated, concrete, practicable proposals as kind of our guiding heuristic. Yeah. So I wanted to to touch on on that, but let me back up for just a second because I had several thoughts when I was listening to Professor Anderson explain her praxis, if you will. And so with respect to the emphasis on non-ideal moral and political philosophizing and, and starting from from current problems that her her doing approach, I mean, I think I I share that uh, that interest. But I also think that I'm kind of coupling Dewey with Frere, right, that it's important to recognize what obscures good diagnoses of problems, right, the function of ideology and the uh, imperative of a kind of problem-posing education, because we can't take, we can't assume that everybody's going to recognize the the same problems, right? And because there's an ideology that tends to elide uh, social and structural issues, right? And, and individualizes them in the society that we live in. And so unpacking that seems kind of important to me because we can't trust that there's going to be some immediate recognition like, oh, this is what we have to test and practice. And then similarly, in terms of testing things in practice and, and carrying out I- experiments, it was interesting to me how Professor Anderson was a little reserved in terms of embracing the present-day uh, abolitionist movement, which I, I found kind, kind of interesting, right? Because as you just alluded to, the, the history of abolition was kind of predicated upon the, this notion that we are dealing with an intrinsically repressive institution of slavery to say the least right and that abolishing it now is uh, you know necessary in order to re- recuperate our our humanity right and i think a lot of abolitionists today uh, share a similar 
similar values. And the concern for a successor institution, I, I, that can also, I think, be posed as, as a problem, uh, especially if we think about that in a monolithic sort of way or in the singular. I, I think a lot of abolitionists today are, are interested in, not interested in replacing the prison industrial complex with one punitive institution, rather maybe an array of counter institutions or you know, a variety of life affirming institutions that help render incarceration obsolete and you know, uh, help uh, move toward eliminating the sorts of socioeconomic issues that give rise to a lot of social harm to begin with. And then, like I said, I also think there's, I also think there is value in critiquing ideology that obscures the the sources of social harm. And similarly, we've talked before uh, when when we had our critical theory episode uh, about the role of the the Frankfurt School and their approach, right, uh, working with the assumption that a kind of revolutionary social transformation at the moment seems unlikely, right? And, and But that doesn't preclude the kind of imminent critique that many in, engaged in. It's in like, this is what we, this is how we envision society being uh, functioning ideally, right? But this is how it fails to live up to that ideal image that we have, right? Even on its own terms. And then also trying to think beyond and, and transcend the frameworks that keep us from the kind of radical experimentation that's necessary to test out and create values in practice to kind of borrow, borrow a Deweyan theme. But I don't know, Eli, did you have uh, additional thoughts on her Deweyan approach? And if does, does yours differ in any way? No, I think, as I was saying, I think I share a pretty similar starting place, you know, for, and I'm sure she would agree that, you know, sometimes present conditions obscure kind of our, our ability to fully comprehend what the problem is or other aspects of it. Um, I agree also that, you know, it shouldn't be, you know, replaced by a monolith. And I think the other thing that's missed about abolition, I guess I would say, is there's an interesting group of literature uh, that suggests that without uh, kind of, uh, pro, you know, some more non-IA or idealistic elements that are not reducible to kind of uh, peculiar, very narrow, gradualist conditions, uh, social change becomes too stagnant. Dewey's, you know, an ameliorist, so he's not always, I think, as necessarily strong on this point that could, as one could be. But I do think there's resources in pragmatism to say that a little bit of what would maybe I would call it uh, resistance about fundamental social or ethical issues and some sort of broad picture can have real practicable change in society. And I think the history of abolition is an interesting case study that we could argue with things like reconstruction about whether how successful that was. And, you know, I think another case study is the work of Eric Olin Wright, who we've talked about a few times on the podcast, who has this book, Real Utopias. And part of his big position is that kind of radical social movements as uh, experiments actually uh, kind of greatly move the center. The periphery, these kind of experiments at the periphery actually provide the resources for radical transitions in culture and society. So without those kind of far off, far reaching, seemingly strange, uh, as uh, Randall Oxford, who was also on the podcast, puts it extreme virtue, sometimes it's very hard to actually help gradualism do its work, if that makes sense. Like I think sometimes gradualism is actually uh, served 
by uncompromised positions, especially about the moral dignity of other human persons. Uh, you know, another case study is James Cone's work about, uh, you know, by the end of the careers of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, they both kind of saw the need for each other and even, you know, you know, played off each other with Malcolm X basically, you know, threatening if you don't go the King route, you're, I will organize and be more aggressive and you'll have to deal with me. It's a kind of hardline bargaining tool. So yeah, I mean, I think there, ameliorism is essential, but sometimes ameliorism needs some kind of fundamental utopic vision in order to get things moving. Right. Speaking of abolitionism, I also was interested in what she, her critique of, of markets. Uh, no. And I, I suppose mine is a little more thoroughgoing. I, I'm not quite as dismissive of the uh, market abolitionist philosophy as, as she is, even if I, I, which is not to say that I think that markets are going to disappear tomorrow and, and that they aren't, you know, institutions that we have to um, kind of navigate right and and sometimes contest uh forcefully but you know i was thinking of somebody like like michael albert who i think i've mentioned on the show before he you know was a an organizer and with students for democratic society in in the 60s when he was at mit and later along with robert hanel became a proponent of participatory economics and his critique of of markets i think is is actually quite relevant and it's it's also very fundamental right and so while i think professor anderson's correct that it, it's inaccurate to think of markets as functioning like just this way right because they can be tweaked and you know ver- a variety of social conditions can give rise to a variety of different markets but nevertheless i think intrinsically markets function in shared ways, certain shared ways, right? So human beings have different abilities to benefit and produce for each other and who can produce more or benefit others more or market themselves, if you will, that way they can demand and obtain more through market systems, right? Uh, Even though those differing abilities, those innate abilities shouldn't automatically bestow a moral claim for those people to do that. And then similarly, markets permit those with greater innate abilities to reap economic rewards, even if they might exert less effort or sacrifice, right? So they don't reward on the basis of what's under our control in terms of the the labor that we perform. That is how much effort we exert and how much sacrifice we make. Those are uh, at least two, two principles that I think would be better criteria than what markets uh, tend to reward. And then also, uh, markets tend to reward people with greater ability to hold out and to, you know, wait to reach an agreement. Right? So they they reward various forms of social power, and so that's going to advantage, you know, a healthy, able-bodied person, generally speaking, over say a single mother with a sick child. To cite a common example, markets also advantage those with greater or easier access to certain goods and materials. Right? So proximity or control over desired resources essentially happenstance, right, becomes a major factor in determining who gets the best deal. And then also the wealth that's conferred by those who exercise the most power within market systems that tends to confer social power that extends beyond the institution of markets for allocating goods and services through a kind of competitive buying and selling, right? And so it uh, it becomes this kind of reinforcing vicious cycle where power continues to concentrate. And so I think there's plenty of critiques 
that apply to the, in, um, I would say, inherent nature of markets somewhat trans-historically, insofar as that the label markets has any meaning, right? I, I think everything that, that I kind of just described tends to apply. And so it's interesting to me to think about, you know, in what ways higher ed can divorce itself from some of those more deleterious aspects of markets. And, you know, Professor Anderson, of course, mentioned the issue of uh, externalities, right? What markets, uh, uh, what actors in a market system don't have to take into account, it, whether it's, you know, envi- environmental degradation as a result of the market transactions taking place and the, the production and, uh, and, and the, the purchase that ensues, or, you know, maybe it is uh, the destruction of a, a community, something of that sort, you know, here in the Inland Empire, where I live in Southern California, there's uh, been a real transformation of the social and political economic landscape to become somewhat of a warehouse economy. And Amazon has certainly played its part in that transformation. And, you know, the air quality has suffered as a result. That's an externality. And of course, Amazon is uh, maybe the epitome of private government, right? Because the amount of control that the company exerts over workers' lives, warehouse workers, right, don't, don't even uh, aren't even provided, you know, bathroom breaks sometimes, and they're 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 paid a pittance. Whereas Jeff Bezos, I think, gained seventy five billion between March and September. And so, at any rate, I, I know Eli, you're familiar with some of the the history of higher ed and the way that higher education is, has interacted with and and used and been influenced by markets. And so I wondered if maybe you could uh, share a little bit of that that history so that maybe we can get a better better sense of what some of the possibilities are. Yeah, I mean, just the end, I think I, I feel a little bit maybe perhaps more of the tension that she was talking about. I think for non-ideal, it depends on what level. First thing, just do some backup, you know, discussion of markets. Uh, I go back and forth for have different kind of views on the whether markets in some abstract sense have sort of an inherent logic that couldn't be otherwise that have led to the, you know, the, the issues you've talked about, if that had to be the case. That seems like a, you know, grand level of necessity. I just, it's, you know, we don't have other worlds to compare it here. So like I have a hard, I, there's a Hegelian part of me that do think there's inherent contradictions that have kind of spilled out. But whether those contradictions on some grand level were necessary, you know, if there couldn't be an alternative history, I don't know, where we all ended up in social democracies of the Scandinavian sort. You know, I don't know if there's a different story that could have happened. Uh, so that, that's a hard one for me. And to add for what I think she was saying is I think for non-ideal theorists, they say uh, they tend to be skeptical of the claims that want to give that kind of rational necessity to the inherent lockup market. So they say, which market has, has they've developed now? Obviously there's problems with the markets they've developed now, right? So I think part of what she's saying comes from a certain kind of methodological attitude to the problem, which is that like there's markets as we experience them now out of the conditions in which we find them. And so, yeah, I, I have both opinions. I do think there is some inherent logic for sure. There's some demonstration of that, but I don't know how much it could have been different if different kind of factors had emerged. And of course, I do think market is a, one of those loose enough terms that part of the problem is just what you said. It's not that if you don't point those things out, it loses meaning. Often it does just because it's such a big general concept. 
about what could or could not be a market. So, you know, I, I also go back and forth whether we should just say market economies are, are inherently flawed or just something like, you know, late stage capitalism as it's emerged out of the kind of historic forces we find ourselves is un fundamentally unsustainable. Um, uh, seems like a subtle difference, but on, you know, nerdy philosopher pontificating questions, it can have, it can have some bigger impacts. Now that said, for higher education, this is, you know, a really interesting case study uh, because it's, you know, as I've said before, universities are inherently slow, messy organizations. That said, there's lots of really recent and interesting research I mean, over the last you know, few decades, uh, like Academic Capitalism, which is a great book talking about what happened in the 70s. But, you know, there's stuff much earlier with like William Clark's book about academic charisma and the origins of the research university really makes the case that German research university had to do with the growing market economy in Germany, and particularly in some ways modeling the idea that we would no longer kind of have the medieval feudal model of a kind of uh, particular caste of particular families run to universities, but rather universities would be kind of sites for leading compelling figures who have new research or at least uh, broadly appealing ideas because for them, like part of the idea was like, if you can hire people who have, are advancing particular kind of disciplinary knowledge, they will, those are the kind of people you want to bring in because they, you know, have some sort of, I don't know what you would call it, economic value in a broad sense that's worthy of consideration. And for, you know, at the very least, there's no question that universities have profited and in the places they've grown rapidly, it's because of the conditions of, uh, the exploitative wealth that's been available by kind of late stage capitalism. So, you know, things like University of Chicago is fundamentally funded by Rockefeller funding. And the ability of universities to sustain themselves comes off their ability, partially to have endowments that, you know, keep accruing, make money on themselves. Um, so there's many ways in which the point is they're kind of deeply embedded in economies. And it's certainly the case, you know, I think, even uh, Anderson kind of slipped into some of that dreaming of that there was a point where a higher education was more independent from that. In some ways, it was always embedded in it, perhaps with less of the kind of uh, profiting off the system and being kind of utilized by it, uh, even if in maybe the last 30 or 40 years, it's been particularly totally instrumentalized by that logic. I think all to say that a higher education is another interesting case that um, I think things probably could have ended up differently if we, you know, the U.S. had not uh, had such a struggle with the kind of social safety welfare net model that some other European models had after the Second World War. You know, we tried it, but there was always this libertarian ethos that resisted it to a much more extreme degree. So I do often wonder in, you know, alternative world Z where if we had really gone the socialized democracy road in Europe, what the US would have looked like, what our situation would look like. Would we still ultimately be in the place where all those economies, that, that kind of uh, welfare state model was ultimately spinning out either way because of the kind of limits of how industrialization and late stage capitalism developed or would have happened slower? Would a new kind of alternative to markets emerge when we had a socialized, a strong social safety net and a kind of focus on individual human beings and communities as the, the source we needed to support? Would some sort of other organization emerge more naturally? 
it's really hard for me to say. I'm not sure if that was a little here nor there, but I think you get the idea. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? Maybe you can wrap up more eloquently here. No, I just, uh, with re respect to, to markets and the possibility of alternative arrangements, I think it'd be a mistake to dismiss out of hand or to foreclose the possibilities of other ways of producing and allocating the goods and, and services that we need and, and want and desire. And there's been experiments with producer and consumer councils and worker councils. And, you know, there's obviously the history of syndicalism, which has been you know, tried out and ephemerally and if, you know, successfully, if only uh, for a short period of time, times like during the anarcho-syndicalist revolution during the Spanish Civil War, and right now in places like, like Rojava, where they haven't eliminated markets, but they've, in many ways, I think, uh, Rojava, the autonomous area in Syria, where there's been a really interesting social transformation taking place along kind of libertarian municipalist lines, a form of libertarian socialism that's kind of community-based there. And markets have been very much subordinated to other forms of human interaction and, and flourishing, which I think is, is certainly a, a step in the right direction and, and something that I would favor. And then what you had said about the sort of mythology of the independence of the uh, university from, from markets, I, I was thinking of also about the interplay between research and development that takes place, uh, that, that's historically taken place at the university level and in, in also in conjunction, of course, with the military, the euphemistically termed Department of Defense, which really the universities and the military birthed the high-tech industry as we know it today, right? It, it, but even though that was publicly funded, interestingly enough, right, it was turned over to private enterprise to reap the rewards. That's an interesting development that uh, that I don't think is I don't think that's that's the only example that we have right of private enterprise taking from the public trough. In, in fact, I think that 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 happens repeatedly. Whether it is the you know bank bailouts after after two thousand eight or in you know a, a variety of different ways that those who have who have some market power right are able to tap into public funds and resources in ways that that those who do not uh, share that same uh, wealth and privilege are, that they're unable to do. And, and I think you can think about that on a more macro level or, or systemic level, too, in terms of, of, of institutions. And so in the interview, Professor Anderson mentioned charter schools, which to me are like, and I, I mean, I understand some of the, the rationale if you have, if you live, say, in an impoverished area in the inner city, for example, or in, you know, some of the uh, working class uh, suburban areas today, and maybe there aren't any good public schools in the area, I can sympathize with parents that are like, hey, we really have no options for our child to get a quality education. And so I can understand the appeal of of charter schools, but the dynamics, right? The very dynamics, this, this idea that we're going to take public dollars, but then we're not going to be publicly accountable or transparent or in any way democratic. Right? And, and it's telling, right? That charter schools are so vehemently anti-union in terms of, of teachers unions. Like 
how dare somebody who uh, is subject to our dictates without any influence from the broader public or, or community, how dare they want some say over the decisions that affect them and that affect the education right, that, that they're trying to provide. At any rate, I, I think that what uh, Professor Anderson pointed out in, in terms of many of the shortcomings of market systems and the negative impact on education from the K through 12 level on, I think, I think that's, that's accurate. And I think that there are forms of collective action that can go a long way toward trying to combat and contest the authoritarian modes of employer government that she discussed in the interview and that she talks about in, in her book. Yeah, maybe I'll just end with, you know, I think, um, uh, I think that also what you pointed out just makes another interesting point, which is the other idea that, you know, there's ever been something like independent markets. It's a little deceptive too. They've always had a pretty complex role with nation states. It's not like we've ever had a yeah. free system either. Absolutely. And, you know, or like a system of like, uh, that, you know, hasn't had markets kind of evolve in sort of very different sorts of functions. So there's no reason why they think we can't change them further. With that said, I am going to close us out here. Thank you for listening to the NAB podcast. Tune in for our next episode. And of course, check out the NAB website if you're interested in learning more about uh, ways to revitalize holistic learning in higher education. Thanks for listening.